You're listening to the That's My Financial Guy podcast, where we talk about life, love, the funny, and of course, money. What could go wrong? Welcome to another episode of the That's My Financial Guy podcast. I'm your host, Brian Haney with The Haney Company, and I am thrilled to have Kristen Shea from Highland with me today. We're going to have a fun time. Yeah, super great to meet you. And I wanted to ask you... Of course. Before no, the go. podcast started, um, but, but now we're recording and it makes sense because it's part of your intro. <laughs> what does the guy who... The guy with the pants mean... In oh. your intro. Oh, wow. Have you already explained that? We have, but listeners? so, no, such a good question. Always <laughs> appropriate okay. to reframe it again. So um, it's kind of one of the networking throwaways that was always a fun thing for me to say in social context and professional context is, you know, whatever your elevator pitches, I would always kind of throw in there and, you know, and he looks great in pants. Oh, okay. So a lot that's of times was. there was this little like, oh, that's kind of funny. And it landed and it stuck with me for, you know, the better part of 10 years professionally. So, uh, that was part of our, as, as the, uh, the podcast was getting launched, one of my little nuanced fun things that then became a fun question slash conversation piece. You have pants for the podcast that I'll get yeah, to we, go we home had, in? We had, we had a few pant-related conversations, some pant recommendations. Okay. We may at some point pursue a pant sponsor. I don't know. Like a nice we've, line. We've, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I can take this in a number of different directions. I don't know. We're just, we're just waiting for that right opportunity to monetize the pant portion of the financial podcast. So we'll see. That's a brilliant question. You're like, well, I don't know. All I know is I'm the guy that looks good in pants. It's, it's, I don't worry about I, the other stuff. I don't, it's, I don't sweat, <laughs> you know, I don't sweat the petty things and I don't pet the sweaty things. So, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're in, we're in good shape. That's so, awesome. um, let's That's get awesome. to know you and I'm going to, these are probably going to be the hardest questions that we have to talk about. So, um, if you could have dinner with a famous person alive or dead, who would you want to have a meal with? question killed me i was tough. googling most interesting famous people on the way here excellent um, hopefully not while you're driving but n- no 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 of course not the philosopher okay they will use that the philosopher in me as a general term um keeps bringing me back to three people um jesus okay the dalai lama and stephen hawking Sounds like the beginning of a good joke, too, so I like it. That's a good trifecta. All right. They all walked into a bar and something happened, I'm sure. Yeah. Cool. Very nice. Take a long time to prepare for that, you know? (laughs) No. Good. Any any one of those three, I I would love to have a meal with all of them. So I love it. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. We'll we'll stay with the meal-related scenario. What food will you not eat under any circumstance? This one was easy. Mayonnaise. Okay. I like it. It's not I mean, happening. I don't like it, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's so gross. Was, so is there was there an incident that, that spurred this, or has it just kind of be, always been a general distaste, and you know, you've now solidified it as an adult that I'm just mayonnaise equals no? If I'm being honest, I, can, I don't know that I've ever really had mayonnaise oh, where it's grossed good. me out. It's just knowing what it is yeah. and looking at it and smelling it, it like yeah. totally grosses it me out. I don't even want to go there to try it. Yeah, I'm, 
I can appreciate it. I, I'm with you in that regards. I am, I am not a mayonnaise person myself. I don't know that I would never eat it, but I, yeah, we're, we're probably closer on the spectrum there. So I like that. Okay. And then again, I've had like aioli sauce, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that gets mixed with mayonnaise that's that true. you that's, eat. That's tricky. So yeah, maybe that's not a good answer. No, but, but I, we'll, we'll just, we'll, yeah, go yeah, we'll, we'll go with it. If you could have a superpower, okay. what superpower would you have? This is another tough one because the the usual ones that people go with are not practical. Like it would be cool to fly, but like, is that like the one I would love to be able to run with full energy on whatever hours of sleep. So I guess to, to never be tired, if that's okay, but still be able to fall asleep, which also kind of spins off into unable to get sick. That would be nice, like to be unaffected by germs, which also leads into, uh, I'm sure some people can relate with this, the ability to not like ever feel hungover after, hmm. after like having some drinks. Yeah. Like, all of that, just like feeling good all the time. That, that's well thought out. I love the building blocks of all of that. Yeah, that's, yeah, I can... I can identify with all of those powers in terms of their uh, desirable qualities. So, okay. And if not more traditional teleport, that'd be cool. Yeah, that is, that's (laughs) one that, especially as we, uh, you know, slog through what is now the 24 seven cycle of DC traffic. I think there's not a second that goes by when I'm in a car in that situation thinking, man, isn't there a better way? I mean, Star Trek had it down, like just boom, let's go beam me up. Whoever, yeah. let's let's make this thing happen. Beam I mean, me there's got to be. I am sure you know if it's Steve Jobs, cronies, or somebody out there that's going to figure this out, right? I mean, we're cloning stuff now, yeah. so I mean, to me, this is let's go. Five years. I want to. I don't want to. I just want to jump jump in a pod and be somewhere else. That's yeah. Okay. All right. We'll 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 have to a listener to this episode is gonna gonna this is gonna be the fuel that'll get us over the hump. I think. Yeah. So I like that. All right. Um, let's talk professional stuff. So tell, uh, just give us your, your, your story. What's your story? What do you do professionally? And, and kind of how did you get here? And what's the background? Fill us in. This is a, this is a fun story. Awesome. Uh, I am, I'm from the Northern Virginia area, just, just like you are, at least right now, <laughs> recently. The, the DMV. Yeah, 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 yeah. The DMV. Graduated from high school uh, early, hadn't really channeled my energy, wasn't ready to go away for go away to school. Um, graduated high school at 16, trying to get really wow. far ahead. And then after um, a bunch of speeding tickets and uh, some a, a concussion after five previous concussions playing sports, had some head trauma, took me out of school. And everything that I did to try to get ahead basically put me behind. So uh, was struggling with college, wasn't feeling really motivated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Short, short story long, was working at a restaurant. <laughs> I love it. No, <laughs> was working good. at a restaurant, studying economics at George Mason. Uh, my chairman and CEO, um, I had served them as a waitress and their clients and their personal meals and celebrations. And they asked me to take a survey, which of course was like a sales aptitude test. And I didn't know much except for that they were nice people and they tipped well. And I owed a lot of money to the IRS from waitressing wages. And I was 
tired of college and uh, took a leap of faith into the big bad world of financial services. Yeah. And at first it was um, a big challenge internally because mm-hmm. I always saw myself as an artist, as a student of the people, as... Um, you know, a, a psychologist of sorts, uh, didn't want to go to med school, so didn't pursue that, but really interested in people. I was afraid I'd join the machine and, you know, was, you know, worked for the man and it was all stuffy, but I realized after a couple months that there's no better industry to help people and to be a student of the people and to be creative and make a real meaningful impact in people's lives than in this industry. And, was lucky enough to be in a company where I could also exercise my my creativity to try to shake things up a bit where a lot of this industry can generally be a couple hundred years behind. Um, I've had a lot of flexibility <laughs> yeah. to um, do do things my way and and I've had a lot of fun and it's been very energizing and it's been very good to me, I think in return. That's awesome. That's a great and I imagine, and, and you'll have to tell me if this is if my suspicions are correct, but I imagine a lot of what you do now, your time spent waitressing and engaging people like that probably prepared you as well as anything else that you did. Is that is that true? You feel that way sometimes? Oh, totally. One hundred percent. You yeah. have to be able to think on your feet, you have to be able to multitask, you have to be able to break bad news, you have to be able to keep a smile on your face. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot. I mean, I think I think being a waitress or a waiter, excuse me, would be good for anybody going into any industry unless it's very technical or, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but nothing teaches the soft skills better than having to have conversations and, and serve, you know, observe behavior that, you know, you have to then think about. I mean, it's, yeah, and there's a yeah. lot of really good stuff wrapped up into a pretty tough job too. So, you know, yeah. you get to, you get to deal with the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah, totally. And I guess the other thing also is that no day is ever the same because no people are ever the same. Right. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, what do you, so what do you spend your days doing now in your role with Highland? That's a fun question. Yeah. And, um, I, I wear a couple different hats at Highland. My primary role is working with, some of the country's top independent financial advisors mm-hmm. and supporting them in finding the right uh, finding the right tools to build their retirement income plans, address the risks that their clients are concerned about in within their retirement income plan, and also in general finding ways to increase returns, lower risk in their clients that are not yet in the distribution side of their financial plan and are still in the accumulation process. Outside of that, I work with those same independent advisors from a marketing perspective, helping them grow their business, which, um, which means a ton of different things, um, depending on the advisor and outside of, I guess what I do at Highland, I am an educational partner with the Alliance for Lifetime Income, which is pretty cool. It is. And such an important organization, such an important role because, so that's uh, a perfect segue into something that um, I'm excited for us to talk about. And that's really, you know, this, I think, giant concern, opportunity, a whole bunch of words wrapped into one, but helping uh, not so average Americans 
stop working, retire, and, and kind of sail off into the proverbial sunset. That's a, that's a big thing, obviously, that um, people in the financial industry are trying to help the consuming public with, but also America as a whole is challenged by today and, and in ways that 10, 15, 20, even 30 years ago, we weren't challenged in the same ways that we are now. So let's let's try to, as, as much as we can, unpack some of this, because I think this is going to be a really good conversation. So as you see in your day-to-day, especially working with so many different advisors, I mean, I know what I, what I think that I see, but what are some of the big things, the pain points, the concerns that you see a lot of advisors trying to help people address? In the retirement income planning process yeah. specifically? Yeah. <sighs> I know, right? We don't have three hours, I know. Nobody's going to listen for that long. (laughs) You know, I think the biggest challenge to building a retirement income plan happens before before anybody goes and talks to an advisor because there's so much uncertainty that comes with this thing that is retirement that lasts for Mm -hmm. 30 or 40 years. And people are less likely to even use the financial professionals that they have access to, to get answers and to start building a plan because they're afraid of this unknown. So like, if you think about it, there have been times, and I'm sure you can relate where there has been something wrong with me and I've kind of dragged my feet a little bit to go to the doctor because I didn't really want to know Mm-hmm. what it was. Sure. But eventually you go yep. because most of the things that happen to your body when you are ill or uh, you are not well, you can see, you can feel, you can touch. If you don't know somebody, you can, if you know, if you haven't um, experienced it personally, you probably know somebody who has, or you can go on Google and you can see a hundred thousand Google images of what happens if you do not get this thing addressed, right? Yep. Retirement and the risks to a retirement income plan is very different because nobody knows what, first of all, generally a 30, 40 year long retirement is a very, very new concept. You can't, you can't really call anybody and you don't really know what it looks like the same way that we know what cancer looks like of what it looks like to run out of money in retirement, what it means to outlive your savings, what it means to have a couple bad years of the market and then be tapped out, what it means to not be able to afford your qualified care facility. You can't Google, you can't Google the images. You don't have any idea how it feels. So it's something that's very easy to say, I'm kind of afraid of what this professional is going to tell me, but it's more comfortable for me to avoid it and not address it. And I'll get to it when I get to it because it's not that urgent. So, you know, there are a lot of risks, but part of me wants to say, and we can talk about those risks. Part of me wants to say that we shouldn't, we shouldn't talk about these risks in a way that is daunting or scary because it just perpetuates the fact that people would rather take their cat on a walk or, watch Netflix, right. Individually pluck out all their leg hairs, then, then go and and look at some of these risks in, in the face. Yeah. I think you did a beautiful job of, of creating a framework of some of the things that we see on a regular basis. And, you know, I always, when I do have, when I'm not saying I'm the guy that looks good in pants, when I'm more, (laughs) more appropriately trying to help people understand what the heck I do. A lot of times I just tell people very matter of factly, um, you know, that I help people try to make the decisions that they want to make that in their heart they're trying to make 
but that they just really don't know how to make, to your point, because there really isn't any one-size-shoe-fits-all formula. There's not a whole lot of really good tangible examples. There's certainly no playbook. And the variables are not as um, maybe succinct and measurable as we'd like to think that they are. Mm-hmm. And so you you landed on it. It's it's how do we engage and look at things in an effective way that's going to allow you to to not confront it in like you're trying to slay a giant, but maybe frame it in a way that makes those decision points a little bit easier for you to comfortably navigate. Um, and, and certainly removing that fear factor to the degree that's possible. Yeah. In fact, the, the Alliance for Lifetime Income published a, a research report, um, I guess some, summer of last year, so summer 2019. And the biggest proponent of uh, successful outcomes in retirement starts at people having a positive outlook before, before they even start the planning process. And which, which takes them to the point where they actually feel comfortable meeting with an advisor. Therefore they're going to have a good plan, but also them also, you know, the other thing outside of just having a positive outlook is talking to other people who have had positive outlooks. Anyways, having really good energy going into it is really important because the risks that are out there, probability and magnitude are, are very, very severe and they should be taken very seriously. Um, they fall into several different categories. You mentioned a few in in kind of that. So let's you know start to I guess put some some context to these risks. When we talk sure. about what what I like to call is really a different season in life. Yeah. Um, because it's it's healthy to think of our life in terms of seasons and and you know really chapters, if you will, because it's not that's not that's more along the ways that I think the human mind considers things as mm-hmm. you're kind of plotting along, right? And um, some of it's certainly more thoughtful than others. But, you know, in, in a new season where the major inflection point is a major lifestyle shift, mm-hmm. meaning prior to retirement, commonly somebody's working in some capacity, might be for themselves, might be for somebody else, doesn't matter. But all of a sudden, you're transitioning now to a period of time where that employer-employee relationship goes away. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to continue enjoying life with, you know, with the people that you want to be enjoying it with. But your your everything that you've been doing up to that point in terms of saving, growing, et cetera, changes. And now the responsibility of perpetuating that lifestyle is, is considerably more on your shoulders than it was before. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about these risk elements to that. You mentioned one, which is really what we kind of in a big picture talk about it's called longevity risk, mm-hmm. but that has a lot of hooks. So let's get into longevity risk. What are some of the things that are tied into? If somebody says the, the two words longevity risk together, what does that mean? Longevity risk is associated with the fact that people are living longer and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the plans that we are building to last for you know what would have been maybe five years hunt, you know, a long time ago is now for 30, 40 years. And, you know, you talk about, you talk about cloning and, you know, whatever else is out there, you know, there may be a chance, there may be a chance that there's a time where retirement lasts for 50 years. So, you know, what, whatever longevity planning means, um, longevity risk means that 
there's an increased chance because people are living longer that you are going to run out of money in retirement. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the different hooks that go into that. The financial system that has been built by our government and in general is not is at a pl- is at a place where it's playing a little bit of catch up because life expectancy rates are continuing to increase. A great example of that is Social Security. So when Social Security uh, was originally created, average life expectancy after retirement was only two years. So the Social Security payments that were being kicked out were only expected to last by any given person for two years. So there were thousands of people paying into a system that less people were taking out because there were less people retiring then than there are today and they were not living very long. It was something that was manageable. Today, you know, the amount of people that are retiring every day is an issue all in itself, but in as it relates to longevity risk, that social security payment has to last for 30, 40 years. That payment is guaranteed to last forever by the government. But this nest egg that you've built, you don't have any guarantee built in there necessarily all the time, unless you plan to create that guarantee that it's going to last forever. Mm -hmm. Um, What can you do to mitigate that longevity risk? Meaning how can you make sure that you don't outlive your money? Yeah. The financial component, you know, medical science being what it is, like you said, you know, uh, mortality tables going up when for literally, you know, over a century, they they weren't, um, or they were relatively static. Yeah. Uh, these are new things that are very significant. The idea that you could potentially be retired for the same amount of years as right? the fact that you were employed, That's which crazy. right. I mean, and just to even sit back and think about that as a concept is something that might scare a lot of people, but at least should provoke us hopefully to to then working that out for ourselves in terms of what does that need to you know what do we need to do to respond to that scenario financially how can we prepare for as optimal of a season of life from a mm-hmm. financial standpoint as we work diligently and hard now in that kind of saving accumulating you know rearing kids and doing all that kind of stuff i think that's you know that's a big challenge um I think some of the other psychological components that I'm sure we both see are, you know, the shift in mentality that needs to happen because when you're earning and you're working and you do have the young kids and and the retirement account and all that other stuff, you see your finances one way as a process of Mm -hmm. saving for something, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Future expenses and all this other stuff. That shifts when you, you know, pull the proverbial lever and the balloons fall from the ceiling and now you're retired and all of a sudden you're not saving for something you're experiencing. That's something you've been saving for. Let's also talk about that psychological shift what we call, you know, moving from accumulation Mm -hmm. to whether it's de-accumulation or income or whatever. Um, How have you seen that as as a major, I don't want to say risk point, but a challenging thing to start to work through? As someone who works with advisors, Mm -hmm. um, I got to say, one, I'm very grateful for you and the way that you understand uh, the distribution or the decumulation phase and the way that you work with your clients and your approach to it. There are many advisors out there who do understand it, but you know, there are perhaps even more, more than that 
who are still stuck in the accumulation phase in the same way the clients are. So, you know, think about it this way. Let's say you want to climb Mount Everest. The accumulation stage is very straightforward. Um, and we would compare that to going up the mountain. Mm -hmm. It's one foot in front of the other. You got to get up this thing. You got to build. You got to do it safely. Right. Hopefully have a harness or two and a helmet. Right. Totally. But you still have a lot of energy. Yeah. Getting up is, is the easy part. You get to the top, you know, we'll say that is retirement. And getting back down that mountain will will compare to the decumulation or the distribution side. And more people die on Mount Everest coming down the mountain than they do going up the mountain. That's very true. That's where the Sherpa or your guide coming down the mountain is going to be the most helpful. It's when you're tired, you're fatigued, there are going to be emotional components that didn't exist on the way back up. You make irrational decisions because yeah. you just want to get the heck down. You having having assistance on the decumulation side becomes more important, and bec- and what becomes less important is how how big of a return you can get or how much you can grow this thing because you have to be much more tempered in the way that you, from a behavioral standpoint, look at your money and also have more of a preservation mindset. And it's interesting because, you know, people think that really big numbers, consistent big numbers with the risk of having some downside is is the best way to be. It's pretty interesting if you compare small sets of small numbers with no negative numbers versus sets of really large positive numbers with some negative numbers in there. The linear average may be the same where the compound average, which is how money actually grows, is better when you're looking at, you know, consistent fours, fives, and sixes versus positive 25, positive 15, but negative 20. Yeah. Well, and, and you're you're describing something that, again, it's a lot of the things where maybe the people on one side of the chair in the financial industry as professionals, we understand, but it's harder to communicate this to uh you know, someone that's trying to engage with it as a consumer. We're talking about, you know, true yeah. total return versus average returns because average returns don't always tell the whole story. You know, how does $1 become $1,000 over time? And you can have a tremendous average return, but have a total cumulative dollar return. That's not what you think it is versus like you mentioned, um, a more predictable risk-adjusted approach that might not look as good sometimes on paper when everybody else's does, but because it's a more smoother and steady ride, it actually can work out much more favorably. I, you know, I, I have a lot of times when I talk about this, and it's kind of the difference between would you prefer to ride an escalator or a roller coaster? If they both got you the same place, I like that. Some people can say, "Well, you know, I love roller coasters, that's really and good. that's fine," but like we understand from a from you know the emotional component and the behavior component your your appetite for taking roller coaster rides tends to to decrease as you get older and certainly as you get closer to that inflection point where you realize that like you said it is about preserving what i have and now engaging with it using it for that purpose i've been saving up all along it's it's a very different experience mentally and, and psychologically as well as it is financially, right? Yeah, totally. So let's um, let's start to get into, I guess, some of the various ways that 
a person can create income for themselves. And I we're, we're probably not going to cover the total spectrum, but you know, maybe three or four of the most common kind of, we'll call them financial instruments that people think about when it comes to how I might go about turning that income spigot on for myself, right? I, all I've been doing is saving and saving and saving. So now we're at the mountaintop. We're at top Everest. Woohoo. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're about to start to descend. One of the ways that, and many people kind of understand this and is a very common way to, to go about considering how to pay yourself is, is kind of that assets under management, you know, having things in an investment portfolio of some kind that you then take a distribution out either as a percentage of the total portfolio value or as a set dollar amount based off of what you need from an income standpoint. Mm. So how, you know, as you see that, um, what are kind of the benefits or the, you know, maybe the pros and also some of the risks associated with that kind of a, an option? Yeah. I wasn't even, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I was, I was thinking more of like the traditional guaranteed routes. Um, that, that's a, that's a good one too. That's, um, so the strategy that Brian was just referring to is his, is usually known as the 4% rule, which has yep. been the general rule of thumb for retirement income. And the story was safe withdrawal rate, right? Um, using a blend of, of stocks and bonds, you know, you could take 4% adjusted for inflation every year out of your portfolio. And you, I think it's like a 90 something percent success rate when, when it was originally proposed. And, for, and since it has been, so it's probably been 40 years, maybe 50 years that it's just been the Holy grail. I have some challenges with it, but I also don't want to say that there is a one size fits all approach because I think that's one of the most dangerous things in this industry, especially in the retirement income planning space is that people feel so passionate about what they think the best route is, um, that they become a little bit divisive and can come across as extremists Mm -hmm. where you always have to do this or you always have to do Mm -hmm. that or you should never do this or this tools the devil or, you know, whatever. And I, I think that that kind of extremism is irresponsible to use with clients who are in the mental situation that they are in going into the retirement income planning stage of their life, talking to people about their money. You know, it's, I don't want to get into politics, but Bernie Sanders is an extremist and Donald Trump are an extremist. Most people are just, you know, they get a lot of attention. They make very strong statements, but most people are generally middle of the road looking for something that is straightforward, moderate, well-rounded, open-minded. So I want to make that disclaimer going into my thoughts on the strategies, because first of all, there is no one size fits all. They're all tools in the toolbox. You Mm -hmm. can't solve the problem thinking uh, with a hammer thinking everything's a nail or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever that saying is. And I think that that, that divisiveness is a huge, huge problem because in one week, a consumer can talk to a CFP and a fiduciary who says that this strategy is never going to work. The guy's got to be a crook if he proposed it to you. And then exact same week, talk to another fiduciary and CFP who says, I can't believe that other guy told you that because this is absolutely hands on the best way to go. How are you possibly (laughs) supposed to find truth and confidence in any of that? Yeah. So that's the disclaimer. Yeah. 4% rule 
is uh, 4% rule is fine. The 4% rule was built before um, can fees had to had to be taken into consideration. Yeah. So you talk about AUM, assets under management. Usually there's some kind of fees assessed. The 4% rule doesn't take that fee into consideration. When you take that 1% annual fee potentially into consideration, that 4% withdrawal rate comes down to 2.8%. Um, that's... that's that's a significantly less withdrawal in order for you to maintain your standards of living and the life that you, you know, you're used to pre-retirement. And also, you know, there are some risks associated with that called, um, sequence of returns risk or commonly known as sequence of returns risks where, you know, the, your average portfolio that may be exposed to, um, risk, uh, inequities, et cetera. Um, may have an average return, compound average return of 6% over the long haul. But if you get a couple bad years, it's going to blow up that, that withdrawal. And then all of a sudden the success rate of that, the success of that withdrawal rate working just bottoms out. So I think it's a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the end. I don't think it's something you should put all of your eggs in. Uh, The other tools would be social security. Social security is fine. Um, obviously there are some change, there are some things that we have to consider with social security. And Everyone's like, when is it going to run lately. out? Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's another risk that nobody talks about and we'll leave that is the political risk yeah. to retirement income plan. Yeah. We just had, we just saw the secure care act pass, but we'll leave that alone. With that said, secret social security doesn't solve the whole, doesn't cover all the bases because on average it covers less than half of your post-retirement non-negotiable expenses. So if we wanted to count on it, it still covers less than half of our non-negotiable expenses. Pensions would be another tool that can provide a guaranteed lifetime income stream, but less than one in five people today have access to a pension and pensions are kind of in the same boat as social security is, which Mm -hmm. is that the long, the mortality tables were not correct. They were paying out more benefits than they could afford as people started to live longer. And there are many States in a very serious pension crisis in in terms of it being underfunded. Um, if you have it fantastic, I hope that they're pulling pensions if they're not funded, um, so that you can count on it because pension payouts are really strong. if, If you're lucky enough to still have one, another tool that, I'm finding to be a very useful part of the puzzle. It is the only tool that um, anybody can get access to that does create a guaranteed lifetime income stream uh, is an annuity. And they come in a ton of different flavors. Yes, they do. um, But a very, very important piece of the retirement income planning process. Well, and and you're you're doing a great job of, of allowing everybody to see that there are many ways that ultimately someone is going to go about putting this income puzzle together for themselves. You know, I think a lot of times, um, you know, when we look at uh, that kind of investment safe withdrawal uh, option, you know, the advantage of it is there's a, you, you get to control it. Um, mm-hmm. You get right. you get to pick how you want to invest your money, and you can make those types of changes 
really as as you need to. You get a lot of control over that. Totally. You get to control how much you take out. You can decide if it's going to be a safe withdrawal. You could say, hey, I just want to take out a, a stated dollar amount because that's my need. Right. And, and, I'll, and I'll do that. And, you know, I, I can dial up risk or dial back risk. Totally. And so, I, you know, there's certainly a lot of advantages to, to knowing that that control component um, is available to you. But as, as, you, as you articulated, when you have control, there's a, there's, there's a flip side to that coin. You're also taking on more risks the more you control. And, mm-hmm. and so that's, you know, leading us into, well, um, what is the risk of a down year, a sequence of returns risk, or, um, you know, a safe withdrawal risk? Let's just go through the two withdrawal scenarios real quick. Mm-hmm. If I'm taking out a percentage of a portfolio, it doesn't matter what that number is. It's great if the portfolio continues to maintain its returns or even goes up because then I get a raise. Mm-hmm. But if I am taking out a percentage and I my portfolio goes down even 10%, then the reality of that experience is I just took a 10% reduction of income. Mm-hmm. So that's a risk. And sometimes people in the retirement decumulation phase might say, well, I don't know if I want to have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And the flip side of it, if I'm just taking out a stated dollar amount, the same scenarios can apply, but that stated dollar amount as a percentage of the total portfolio can change year over year depending on the returns are. Mm-hmm. And if we're not thinking about that and we're taking out a certain dollar amount, and unfortunately, as it relates to a total percentage, that number is higher than it maybe should be, mm-hmm. we're going to see that portfolio erode faster than we anticipated. And so those, you know, more, with more control, right, with greater mm-hmm. power comes greater responsibility. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I and like so, that. you know, that's kind of that. And a lot of times when, when you and I see this as we're, as we're talking just to clients about this, you know, it's good to know where that option fits and why mo- someone might select it. But it's also really important for them to understand the inherent risks with that. Sure. Um, and, and going to, let's go to the entire other end of the risk spectrum. And mm-hmm. let's actually talk about annuities okay. that don't have a market component. Let's talk about fixed income annuities or income only annuities mm-hmm. that w- someone might call the acronym a SPIA, a DIA, which stands for single premium media annuity, deferred income annuity, annuities that essentially we, we can kind of say they're almost like creating a pension for yourself in mm-hmm. a manner of speaking where you're able to um, take a certain amount of money and then essentially in return, an insurance company is going to say, this is the amount of income it will generate when it will it'll be generated, how long it will last. And usually they, they come with some sort of a cost of living option that you can, mm-hmm. you can dial into. Um, and most of these are guaranteed vehicles, meaning not guaranteed, guaranteed by the insurance company that's issuing right. them, right? So um, they don't have a market risk component to that. And that's something that a lot of times I think people see from that um, safety dynamic. Um, so there are... Certainly pros and cons to that, right? So let's talk about those for a second. How do you see income uh, annuities of this type being advantageous, but also what kind of risks do you think that they might pose? Advantages Mm -hmm. would be they can guarantee you a lifetime income stream you can't outlive. Mm -hmm. Not always, but generally, generally speaking, of the annuity family, 
they're going to be able to provide you the highest guaranteed income. It's one advantage, but its primary advantage is an amazing advantage because the number one fear that people have is running out of money in retirement. Mm -hmm. And it costs, so guaranteeable single premium and immediate annuities or DIAs, deferred income annuities, Mm -hmm. can guarantee that this bucket of money will pay you or your spouse your surviving spouse, if you set it up that way for as long as you live. And it will, if there was a certain number that you were trying to back into income wise, a SPIA is going to take the smallest amount of funding on the front end, which can allow you to get more aggressive in the the equity component of your, of your portfolio. If you wanted to take that route, that that's, that's a great thing. The downsides to a SPIA are that, you lose control of mm-hmm. your principal. So for example, let's say you, you dump a million dollars into a SPIA, um, in, income starts, you take a, you take a month's worth of income and then you get hit by a bus. <laughs> if that's okay sure. to say, let's say you still had to, you know, $950,000 or whatever left in that account. That's what's called annuitizing. When you turn this spigot on mm-hmm. the carrier keeps what is left outside of that one payment that you took. That is a major drawback. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that SPIAs right now and the way that the insurance carriers build their products is very much so tied to interest rates and how much room they have based on our interest rate environment to create benefits in, in the products. And interest rates are very, very low right now. Mm-hmm. SPIA payouts are not fantastic. The way that I am using SPIAs um, is more as uh, part of an income ladder, meaning yeah. setting up different buckets of money for, you know, now, later, way in the future. Mm-hmm. It would be one example because I don't want to lock in today's interest rates f- for 30 or 40 sure. years. Yeah. When you just, you hit a couple of good points and this also ties into how do we examine each vehicle, right? To really make sure that we understand them. Um, because you know, let's look at that mortality risk that you mentioned, you know, you, you do want to learn what death benefits or, or frankly, what survivor benefits are available mm-hmm. on all these products. Cause most all annuities have them and you have to choose what option you want. And so based on how you navigate that risk, you know, if you're solving for income and that's the most important risk you're trying to take off the table for yourself, right. you may have to then potentially be accepting some drawback to if you don't live the length of time that you think you're going to live, you might be sacrificing a portion of the funds that are otherwise going to be paid to you as income that could be left over for somebody else. And you have to try to figure out how to balance those two. You know, do I do I account more for the next generation, a spouse, loved ones, et cetera, which could then in turn result in a lower income amount? That's kind of those, that's that variable that people are going to try to have to examine. Um, and you mentioned that that control component. You're transferring the risk of income over to, you know, an, an institution, an insurance company. Um, and so it's almost, you know, akin to the opposite of what we were just talking about with an investment portfolio where the entirety of both the returns and the income are kind of in your control. In this case, we're kind of giving that control over 
to somebody else, an institution that hopefully is you know, financially sound and solid and also can demonstrate to you that it has a history of track record of doing this well. Um, but that's, that's a significant trade-off. And I like how you mentioned a common fit, um, you know, in terms of solving, because it's a guaranteed income vehicle, maybe solving or building that kind of guaranteed income bucket up for somebody, maybe as a complement to social security or, um, you know, planning distribution in terms of stages, Mm -hmm. you know, you can take income out for a period of time using that vehicle Mm -hmm. and then maybe use other vehicles that you didn't now have to use because you, you put this in. So I I like how you describe that, um, in terms of how these things can work together Mm -hmm. because that's a common, um, theme that you mentioned, you know, these instruments, all of these options that anybody has, they're not competing against one another. They don't, one's not better or worse, right? It's all just what are the pros and cons of each as it applies to each person? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you might decide your retirement strategy is going to look like could be very different from mine. Yeah. And neither of us are wrong. Right. Totally. You know, we're 100%. just dealing with risk appetites. And I think hopefully that's um, probably one of the things that you see a lot of the times working with advisors and, and you know, um, clients that helps a lot is maybe taking some of that burden off their shoulders to realize it's not applying some one size shoe fits all. And, you know, they got to worry if they didn't get it just right, but that it's actually a very personalized decision that they get to make. Um, which is really empowering. It is right. It's so cool. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what this process should really be about. Absolutely. You know, how do you put, how do you take the right things off the shelf for yourself? How do you build the Legos the way that you want it to? Maybe yeah, you use yeah. the instructions on the Lego box, but maybe you take it in a different direction. Yeah, Who knows? Two-wheeler right? or an eight-wheeler. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. We'll see. You know, escalators, roller coasters, and Legos. This is These are all the most important things when it comes to, yeah. And yeah. Uh, retirement is... Would you like your Legos to wear pants? You know no. what? Some, some Legos have the pants painted on them. Um, but I, I, I've also seen them create little Lego pants that you fit the Lego people in. So I don't, that's a very good question that I think I'm going to have to spend some more mental energy deciding which side of the scenario. Do I want to actually put a Lego person in a little Lego pants or do I like the painted on scenario? I don't know. I, I don't think I've I think you just brought something up that I'm going to have to devote to another episode. Yeah. You can do it your way, man. You can, you can make your though. pants out That's of right. Retirement. It's about choice. It's all about choices. Let's, let's examine um, annuities <laughs> and kind of what we think. Maybe this is you know, commonly considered a middle ground. So we've gone from one end of the spectrum in terms of you know, an, in, a, a, an investment instrument or vehicle, you know, a portfolio of some kind, however you decide to build that out. We've gone to the other end of the spectrum where we're kind of, we're looking for guarantees and we're willing to transfer almost the majority of the risk, if not all of the risk to another institution. The middle ground, I think a lot of times deals with that variable annuity component. And let's talk about what that is as a, as a financial instrument. And, and I think in the process, probably not necessarily debunk some common misconceptions, but let's deal with what it is in actuality, not what people may be uh, in, in a correctly position it to be what's a variable annuity and and how should somebody start to think about it yeah so 
I'll say there, and, and before we explain what it is, because if we say, well, what about this kind of annuity? Or what about that kind of annuity? Right. People are going to be like, oh, there are 50 kinds of annuities. Yeah. Uh, yes. You, <laughs> you could generally put them under three categories. Yeah. Um, so there's on one end, as you said, super conservative, straight guarantees, uh, your, your SPIA or your DIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side of the fence, you have variable annuities. And, and in the middle, you have indexed annuities, mm-hmm. which, which we can, we can talk we can talk about all three of them if you want, but I also know we've been talking for almost an hour, so we don't have to. <laughs> but variable annuities are almost are, are basically a mutual a mutual fund or a set of funds underneath of the annuity umbrella, and yeah. the annuity umbrella is you know the general characteristics of this tool, which is that the um, the specific tax characteristics, meaning it grows tax deferred while, while you are deferring or you are just letting it accumulate, um, the specific tax principles on how it gets pulled out mm-hmm. on the back end, which yep. we'll leave that for another time, um, and can guarantee a lifetime income source. Also, the other unique characteristic of annuity is that it is protected from probe is protected by probate. So OJ Simpson, thing. when he was uh, in trouble, I, I think he put a couple million into annuities because the court couldn't touch it. That's that's the story. I've Did you been hear told. that? I yeah. Heard that, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. So variable annuities being on the other side of the spectrum being. Uh, the type that is the least conservative and being, uh, you know, basically a, a collection of mutual funds or potentially securities can really be invested no matter how, d- depending on what your risk tolerance is, you have choices. Uh, variable annuities are generally built by insurance carriers mm-hmm. or institutions, and they'll give you a bunch of different options for how you want the money to grow yep. in your account value. Um, you can add an income rider. Mm-hmm. which yep. costs money yep. and there may be some costs on the, on just the, the base contract and how they accumulate the funds. Um, that this income benefit is basically this phantom bucket of money. There's some contractual guarantee that says before you take income, it's going to grow at X, Y, Z rate. And when you are ready to turn on your income, these are the rules. These are the you know rules for how much you'll get paid out. You turn it on and it becomes a guaranteed lifetime income mm-hmm. stream. Um, the difference on the other side of, of the spectrum from a SPIA would be that when you turn that income on, there is, the carrier is not going to keep the contract value from you. So as you pull the income out of it, off of this income rider, this underlying contract value is still going to continue to hopefully grow, um, it, to to an to an extent mm-hmm. because you're pulling cash out of it based yep. on whatever investment chassis you are in and when you pass away your beneficiaries will receive this contract value if there is one left it is a security so there is a chance that you could have something happen in the market or in the fund that you're in and you could lose it all and the clients and then your beneficiaries or your survivors would not have any kind of death benefit but the carrier certainly isn't going to keep it yeah well, and, you know, I like, um, there's a lot of people that I think use visual references. And so I, I always like to talk about variable annuities. And kind of, since we've, we've framed two parts of this spectrum, it's kind of, uh, you know, theoretically, if you have the, you know, the investment portfolio as like a little bubble or a circle, and, and essentially a variable annuity is almost as taking a, 
a life preserver and giving you this this insurance company guarantee oh, around yeah. that security portfolio, which um, costs money, right? There's a cost of insurance. There's a cost of insurance all the time. Doesn't matter what insurance instrument we're talking about, obviously. Um, so in this scenario, when when someone is considering a variable annuity, they have a couple of things that are you know we we're we're talking about transferring risk in you know completely income guaranteed product or having all the risk in just trying to manage my own portfolio. Well, here we've got some of these two things, the risk transfer component working as well as some control. And that's probably, I think, some of the, 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 you know, the advantages that a variable annuity can convey is that you still do get to maintain some control over how you grow and invest the money. And um, a lot of times those insurance riders reward you for performing because certainly you want to be rewarded when your money grows uh, better than maybe you would expect. Mm -hmm. But you're protected now. Your income's protected. And that's the, I think that's the key thing um, that I, I always try to emphasize when I'm talking to somebody about what this does for them. Why are you paying for insurance? What's insurance going to do for you in this situation? It protects that paycheck. It doesn't guarantee a rate of return. That's very important. No, nobody's going to do that in these types yeah. of instruments. Um, and so it's also not going to say your portfolio value is going to be X at some point of time. It's simply going to say, based off of how that rider is built out, yeah. this is the income component that we will guarantee based off of whatever circumstances play out that if the worst case scenario plays out, you you have some down years, you never recover, or you're portfolio value literally just goes and starts to erode, you'll have a paycheck there that the insurance company is protecting that may not be able to be substantiated by the actual investment itself. And mm -hmm. that's that risk trade-off that I think people um, consider when they're looking at that as an instrument. Um, and is that how you've seen uh, advisors successfully kind of position these as, you know, um, a way to take advantage of some insurance risk mitigation without necessarily foregoing all of the control? Yeah, definitely. Variable annuities are just like we said, another tool in yeah. the toolbox. Absolutely. Yeah. The carriers though have to, they have to pay for guarantees. Guarantees That's are right. expensive. So it becomes, so first of all, it's expensive to create this guarantee that is a guaranteed lifetime income stream. And it becomes even more expensive for the carrier to create that guarantee when there's a port, when there's a chance that the money that they have in all these people's contract values and they have in their reserves as a way to keep their promises is subject to the market. Um, and, and they could potentially lose it. It costs them more to create that guarantee than if they didn't have this risk on the back end. Yep. So variable annuities provide better, I think, a better comprehensive situation of control and options. Mm -hmm. But I will say I'm seeing a lot of advisors find look for ways to lower the costs. Mm -hmm. Um, that can be associated with variable annuities and move more toward indexed annuities, which would be the third choice. Mm -hmm. uh, they do have an underlying contract value or account value that can be tied to an underlying index or investment, but is not subject to risk of principle, meaning market risk. So they're never going to get anything less than zero um, while still being able to add that guaranteed lifetime income stream. Um, 
cost is lower for the riders and for the upside because the carrier doesn't have the ch- have the the chance of an apocalyptic scenario right. happening. Um, there are some really intuitive and savvy indices based on fundamental economics mm-hmm. uh, with un, you know driving the growth of today's indexed annuities. That's where we've seen double digit growth year over year in the annuity space is, yeah. is using indexed annuities. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a product that I'd say that I'm the biggest fan of out of the tools in the toolbox sure. and out of the family, um, depending, uh, 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 depending on what you're right. trying to accomplish. Of course. Well, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Depending well, on what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, I appreciate how you frame those two um, comparatively. You know, certainly uh, the biggest consideration that somebody needs to be mindful of when it comes to a, a variable annuity is the cost of insurance mm-hmm. and and what that does in terms of creating really a threshold that you have to overcome, right? You know, if it costs me 3%, for example, just as a number of, of total expenses, I have to at least be earning 3% to get to break even, mm-hmm. right? So you have to understand what the expense component can do as you're considering from an investment strategy standpoint, and also just understanding the total vehicle itself, right? That's really important to look at. When it comes to then the index piece, you know, you have, you create a a framework of, you know, downside kind of floor, if you will, but there's also a trade-off in Mm -hmm. that, you know, the way that they're, they're structured they have a ceiling. They create sure. a, a cap, and that's essentially so that way the insurance company can manage the risk of the guarantees themselves, right? So um, you have a little bit more controlled window of opportunity, but it's important to be aware of that, you know, uh, in certain cap scenarios, right, you may not be experiencing all of the returns that the portfolio is generating. And that's part of that trade off component for the instrument itself mm-hmm. is to say, you know, um, maybe this vehicle is, is certainly going to uh, be a little bit more viable in terms of there's a floor component, there's a market component, and there's a guaranteed income component. But to also understand that, you know, on the upside, and, and these are some of where, you know, the the pros and cons trade-off need to mm-hmm. go is you have to understand what you may lose on the upside in the years if you have a really ridiculously good market year, right? Yeah. And that's, that's very interesting. And it opens up a whole nother topic of where annuities fit, which is a growing, which is a growing philosophy in the financial advising world, Right. which is, you know, obviously annuities are one of the only three tools that can guarantee a lifetime income stream outside of social securities and pensions. That's what they're known for. That is freaking awesome. And we love them for that. That's why they were created by the insurance industry is to guarantee income. That's yep. what an annuity was invented to accomplish. Perfect. Yeah. Totally. Today, um, we're starting to see annuities getting recognized as a fantastic conservative, conservative being the key word, it, um, index annuity specifically, mm-hmm. um, a, a tool to use as a bond alternative. And that's probably where almost half of the business is going in at least the indexed annuity mm-hmm. space 
Um, and for retirees, will you, we'll stick with the theme of the, of the retirees, yeah. make that disclaimer. What's yeah. the word? Differentiation. Sure. Well, yeah. You know, make that thing. Um, the big asterisks. Yeah. So, and uh, so bonds are bonds and the yield of bonds is generally tied to interest rates. Sure. Interest sensitive vehicles for sure. Right. Today's interest rates are down at the bottom and three things can happen. We've had a, well, and, and leading up until this point, because we've been in a falling interest rate environment, we've had a bull market on bonds. Your yields on bonds have been fantastic. Now we are at the bottom and when interest rates go up, the yields on bonds go down. Today, three things can happen. One, they can stay where they are, which is not great right. for bonds. Historically low and, and flat. Right. They can go up, which is not good for bonds, terrible for bonds, or they can go down, which would be the great thing to happen, but there's just not that much further down that we can go. So even in the accumulation phase, people, uh, financial advisors have been searching for a bond alternative where you can earn four to 6% every year without the interest rate risk. Um, because it, you know, the protection is there for the bonds, but you're at risk of loss of purchasing power. Yep. You know, is that 2% yield going to be enough to help you keep up with inflation? I don't know. The carriers that build index annuities, because again, for a retiree, having a tool that has no market risk, but can generate some kind of conservative return is something that people find very attractive. Sure. It's tough because as I mentioned earlier, the carrier's ability to create benefits is largely tied to our interest rate environment as well. So if you look at like the product as a water balloon, whatever that product is, there has to be a squeeze somewhere to get some pop somewhere else. (laughs) And right now there's this big squeeze that is interest rates and it's just a squeeze, (laughs) you know, like usually index annuities are tied to the S and P 500 or us equities. Um, but U.S. equities are a very volatile market, um, kind of alluded to this in the variable annuity conversation, that it can be expensive when you are dabbling in places where there's a lot of risk and yep. volatility. Mm-hmm. So carriers don't have much room in their, you'll say, budget, option budget to buy stuff in the S&P to create upside and therefore, you know, higher caps or, or yep. whatever there. So, you know, a, a downside is that the accumulation right now, the upside in an index annuity may not be as fantastic as it would have been in a higher interest rate environment. The industry is starting to adjust by building actively managed strategies with low volatility because it is cheaper for the carriers to buy, you know, we'll just keep it simple, more of that stuff to Mm -hmm. put in to drive the growth in the index. What you're trading off there is just the the, the upside and then the home run hitting tool, but that's not what it's built for. And the other risk that you have is that also, and I don't really want to put our industry on blast, is that banks and institutions are starting to see um, the fact that the index annuity industry is moving away from just basic S and P strategies and moving towards actively managed strategies, there are um, there has to be another level of due diligence to make sure that you're using indices that are going to do well no matter what is happening in the economy and not what has just worked over the last ten years. Right. Most illustrations 
um, that you receive, which would be like a proposal that your financial mm-hmm. advisor would run for both variable annuities and indexed annuities are using a set of assumptions on an illustration to say, this is what you can reasonably expect from this product. Um, there are some really great indices in the FIA space, and there are some really crappy ones. And there are um, some that we just don't have enough data on because we can only look back at the last 10 years when we had, like I said, a bull market in bonds and a bull right. market in equities. Yeah. So that's another downside is, and I would hate to put it on you as the consumer, but you you have to at least be asking your advisor to be looking at both a worst case scenario in addition to the last 10, which is probably the best case scenario. Yeah. And you've done a brilliant job going through a lot of, um, of these complicated components and, and really, I think talking about the considerations in a, in, I guess, as relatable a way as one can, because these are, these are, these are, these are complicated things. And I think that that goes back to kind of the original point is that, um, it's important to understand so ask the questions of any financial professional or any anything that you're looking at, regardless of where it is on the spectrum, which one of these options it may be. Make sure you feel comfortable knowing how it works, how it won't work, what are you giving up, what are you spent, you know, and know all of that because only then will you be able to figure out, does this fit your situation? Is it going to do something for you that you're trying to accomplish or not? Um, and I think that that's probably kind of the best conclusion that I think we can always come to is, and you, you gave a couple of good example as to how, how these certain instruments can be used, right? As a piece to a larger puzzle, not as the end all be all or the one thing that if you do this, or if you invest in this thing, that everything works and all your problems go away. Cause obviously that's, you know, that's a unicorn scenario that doesn't really exist much. Um, but I really appreciate how, uh, you kind of helped us go through all of this. And I think just the most important points go back to the beginning, right? Don't uh, try not to be as afraid of maybe examining your retirement risk as it might seem. It's, it, it can be daunting, but, you know, working through some of these things and recognizing what, you know, it is and isn't is going to be critical. And then also feel comfortable about working through what are all the options that you have and what are the ones that make sense, you know, knowing what the pros are and what the cons are and not comparing them against one another, but laying them all out and seeing what they are for themselves. So that way you can construct things the right way. And anyone who says never this or always this oh, yes. um, probably shouldn't be the only advisor you talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's that, that's, I always, I always frame that as that's akin to a doctor giving 100 patients the same prescription. That's malpractice. Yeah. Unless all of those hundred patients were the same age, presenting the same, like, were the same exact case scenario. But that's not reality. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it all works. So there isn't, like you said, it's never an all or nothing. Um, and and it's in just it's just important to look at things. You can say no to something. Once you understand it, it's okay to say no to something. Absolutely. Dude, totally. You can say, hey, maybe an, that. now that I understand annuities, maybe maybe this one isn't right for me. Yeah. But at least you examined it and you right. and you and you made an assessment for yourself based off of what you're trying to accomplish. I think that's what's really a lot of people um, maybe are not getting to take advantage of. They're only seeing a part of this spectrum. And I don't think it's I don't think it's gonna work until we show everybody all of the options and they make 
a confident decision. They eliminate the ones that don't fit and they adopt the ones that do. Mm-hmm. I think that that's when everybody wins. And yeah. I think that's what the industry certainly hopes will happen as well. Yeah, totally. We're well, getting closer. I think so. I appreciate you coming in. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Any final shout outs you'd like to make? Well, my first instinct is to say hi to my dog, but she would not. <laughs> hi, She's Ari. not going to be listening. Sorry, not, you're in your crate right now. <laughs> I'll be home soon. No, I don't. <laughs> well, I, I, don't. <laughs> I appreciate Highland letting you come on here. And um, if somebody needs to get a hold of you, how would they contact you? I would say go to my LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah, LinkedIn works for sure. Kristen Shea, K-R-I-S-T-I-N. Shea is in Shea Butter. Um, constantly posting videos about different retirement planning concepts and strategies for advisors to consider. Um, otherwise, my email is kshea. K-S-H-E-A at Highland, H-I-G-H-L-A-N-D.com. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. This has been really fun. Awesome. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the That's My Financial Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed yourself. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can find us online at thehaneycompany.com or on Twitter at The Haney Company. The information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Haney is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC.